This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. turkey did you eat a couple pieces just a couple yeah we just had a small thanksgiving are you not a turkey fiend turkey's fine i i think it's one of the more boring meats because it gets it gets dry like faster than chicken and it tastes less than than red meat do you brine your turkey i don't really i don't we don't cook the turkey we always go and eat somebody else's turkey where did you eat turkey this year Susanna's grandfather's. Does he brine the turkey? I don't know. I didn't ask him. You should ask him. If he doesn't. Turkey, just like I go to a place and then turkey happens <laughs> to me. <laughs> it's not a process that I'm really involved You've in. You've been turkeyed, all. you turkey. <laughs> it's a good vehicle for a whole bunch of other flavors. Right. I mean, like, I don't know, like chicken nuggets or like. Uh, buffalo wings or whatever just they're just vehicles for sauce so in the same way turkey is just a vehicle for gravy but i see i like like a good stuffing or mashed potatoes is a vehicle for gravy more because they're like better foods to start with well mashed potatoes is nectar from the gods so some good mashed potatoes like how do you like your mashed potatoes screw this turkey talk how do you like your mashed potatoes screw turkey talk welcome to overdue it's a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read and the potatoes you've been meaning to eat my name is craig my name is andrew and i love all sorts of mashed potatoes actually what's your favorite kind well my favorite kind might not exist anymore it's the good garlic mashed potatoes from bennigan's (laughs) and i don't know that i don't think most of bennigan's still exist anymore jeez does that even count like i don't know oh man Okay, so here was my meal after marching band in high school. You Yikes. so you you march, right? And yeah, you work up an appetite. You you work up an appetite carrying that mellophone around. I'll tell you what. Mm-hmm. And then you go with everyone to Bennigan's and you lie to the server and tell them it's somebody's birthday so that they bring out a free brownie. They've got to be on. Like every server has to be on to that, right? Like how often do you think they think that it's actually somebody's birthday? Yeah, but when there's a party of like 20 hungry high schoolers, like what are they going to do? So then you order the chicken tenders Mm -hmm. with two sides. And here are your two sides, Andrew. Okay. French fries and good garlic mashed potatoes. (laughs) That's just two potatoes. It's the same thing. It's not the same thing. This has been Bennigan's hacks with M. Craig Getting. I do also like a good creamy mashed potato. I made a I made a creamy mashed potato for Thanksgiving this year, but I I boiled garlic cloves with the potatoes. Usually, mm-hmm. I'm used to like mashing up the garlic and shoving it in there when you're putting all the butter in. <laughs> uh, this worked differently, and I think the result was just as good. So, pro tip. Okay. Cool. Pro the more this has been Tater Tips with M. Craig Getting. Are you a, a skin in the potatoes guy? I do like some skin in the potatoes. And that's the kind of mashed potatoes that we had at Susanna's grandfather's house. And yeah, it was it was good stuff. Like I'm not you don't want to have potato skins in every context, but 
Actually, I think Tato Skins is a branded weird thing that actually exists. <laughs> There's like a so. Y and three Zs in it. Yeah. <laughs> Tato Skins. Can you tell me what your favorite gravy is? Like, do, what type of gravy do you prefer? Good gravy. Well, it's got to... <laughs> no, I like it when it's good. Okay. Good like, gravy. Like a dark brown gravy... Like a light turkey gravy. Just Apparently, brown. you don't like turkey, so probably not a turkey gravy. It's just well, I mean, I, again, turkey like gravy just is a thing that appears in front of me when I go to places for Thanksgiving. <laughs> I don't make gravy. I make I'll make pumpkin pie. Like that's the stuff I'm involved in making. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, so you're asking me like about the mechanics of a food that I've never really seen in its raw form. <laughs> <laughs> Do you mean gravy or potatoes? Either or. <laughs> Or turkey. Well, when gravies grow in the wild, um, they come from the gravy bush, which the gravy bush tend to grow next to potato plants. Let's you're just trying not to talk about this book. Let's talk about your book this week. Every week, one of us reads a book and then eventually tells the other one about it. Yeah, <laughs> Craig, what did you do this week? Uh, what did I do? I ate a whole book bunch wise. of. Pot- oh. No, no, no. Oh, back to books. Back to books you say i read mm-hmm. catch 22 by joseph heller and this was recommended to us by wallace one of our patreon supporters so Thanks, thank wallace. you wallace andrew have you read this book before nope what do you know about catch 22 i know that it originated the phrase catch 22 that's correct mm-hmm. do you Which know <laughs> like a What's the best way to describe it? It's just like a it's a logical loop. It's a logical double basically. bind is a yeah. good way, is a way to to explain it in that it is a closed loop of logic from which there does not seem to be an escape. Um yeah. so the the one of the catch 22s in the book catch 22. And this is this I did a lot of research on the book's path to publication. Cool. And one of the notes on Heller's note cards was that anyone who wants to be grounded can't be crazy so basically anybody who didn't want to fly in a plane and drop bombs on people and also have guns fired at them couldn't possibly be crazy because that's an insane thing to want to do in the first place yes and the the way that this is explained in the book is the only way to get out of flying if you're not like physically injured is to get some sort of you know mental examination that says that you are crazy but the very act of requesting one of those because you don't want to fly means that you are rational and sane. Yeah. So you can't get out of it. Catch-22. Catch-22. So I think the term has kind of shifted. It's gotten a little broader over the years. I think some people tend to use Through it. misuse, generally, When stuff's right? just like, difficult. <laughs> like, oh, my car's broken. Catch-22. Like, that. no, that's not how it works. That's literally the dumbest thing that I've ever heard. Well, welcome do you get to what this. I'm doing? Do you get what I'm doing there? I'm misusing the word literally, <sighs> and thus contributing to its unfortunate corruption. Or fortunate corruption, if you ask me. I you like, are literally wrong about. <laughs> I like about corrupting that. words, Andrew. <laughs> who the hell is Joseph Heller? Uh, he's the author of Catch Twenty Two. <laughs> Uh, he flew planes in World War II. He did. He uh, joined the war at age 19, Andrew. He served two years in Italy as a B-25 bombardier. What did you do when you were 19? Um, I 
maybe like I got bombed at a party <laughs> a c- couple times. No. But that's like as close as I got. And it's I read some about um there's this really good piece in Variety that I think is adapted from a biography about him. And it makes flying in one of these planes sound like the most terrifying thing that anyone has ever done. So you're flying in these bombers and it's you and a few other people. You've got like a pilot and a co-pilot. Now, when you, the bomber, like slide into the nose of the plane so you can aim stuff, one, you have to leave your parachute behind because the compartment is too small. Correct. Two, you are getting shot at with anti-aircraft fire from the ground. Correct. And that fire is usually pretty accurate. Also correct. (laughs) Three... The person dropping the bombs needs to have control of the plane while they're doing it. So there is nothing that the pilot or the co-pilot can do to evade that anti-aircraft fire for the 60 seconds or so that you are aiming and dropping the bomb. Yes. And then four, you communicate with the other people in the plane through a headset that can sometimes fall off (laughs) Uh if you get jerked around too much. And that can be a little scary for everybody. Or sometimes you just can't hear because yeah. the bombs and the because flak. Because you in a plane dropping a bomb getting shot at. Yeah, it sounds like the best. Yeah. And he flew, what, he flew like something like 60 missions. Now, he did say that most of them were uh, milk runs, is the term. Which that is, seems like a waste of resources to just fly the plane to go get milk. There's a there's war there's a war on Andrew. He just... <laughs> yeah, to get milk however you could. <laughs> uh milk runs actually literally no not literally, actually meaning that there was not a lot of uh resistance to whatever the heck you were doing. Yeah. That it was it was a milk run. You went out, you got your milk, you bombed some people. No, but every every once in a while you'd be trying to bomb a bridge in a heavily populated area and that would not go as well for you. <laughs> no, certainly not. Uh, so he came back and through the GI Bill got his MA in English. Um, it, well, no, he didn't get his MA from the GI Bill. He got his BAs from the GI Bill and then went on to get an MA in English uh, and was a Fulbright scholar and uh, was teaching writing and doing some dramatic writing. Um, and then he started in on this book, Catch-22, in 1953 which I think it started just as like a chapter that got passed around, right? Yeah, it started as a chapter. I think it was published in a in a magazine oh, like, yeah. as just the one chapter. Mm-hmm. So it was called Catch 18, and he wrote it in just a couple days, and he got it to, um, like, through a, through a publisher he'd worked with at The Atlantic. True. He got it to an agent named uh, Candida Donat- Donatio. Donatio, yes. And um, she was also an agent to John Cheever, Jessica Mitford, Philip Roth, uh, Bruce J. Friedman, Thomas Pynchon, um, several people who we, I, I think we should read them for the show. I don't, I actually don't think that list of authors, we've read very many of their books for no, the show yet. We so actually, that's our, that's our We've hit problem, Philip Roth but, and that's about it, I think. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, she was, she was. She had a pretty good reputation, like early she did later on. But yeah, this is this is one of her earlier discoveries. And so she gets it published and she's shopping it around for him, like as his agent. And um 
gets it into the hands of the 26-year-old Robert Gottlieb at Simon & Schuster. Um, Now, he was in a unique position at the time because a lot of um, higher, a lot of like senior editors had either died or retired Interesting. In like the space of a couple years. And so he had more power than he might otherwise have had (laughs) to like pick books and publish them. And, and so he and Heller are working like intensely over this really convoluted manuscript, like partially handwritten, partially typed, just taking like literally copying and pasting big chunks. And I say literally because they had to, like cut stuff and then paste it somewhere else with paste. It wasn't like a computer thing. <laughs> well, and then like, like put cobbling together this manuscript that kept growing and growing and growing. And, and like I, the, the first chapter that was published as catch 18 was written allegedly in, in like a day or two, but then like drafting the second chapter took another year. And by the time a manuscript has gotten to Gottlieb, um, it's seven chapters handwritten and it's 1958. So it has already been five years since he started in earnest. And I think it was something like over 700 pages. And the final, yeah, the final one, well, not the final one, the final one that went to publishers, but by the time it's getting to be like 1959, 1960, and they're seriously like editing it and getting it ready for publication, it expanded to 750 something typed pages and 16 chapters and a lot of that was cut during the editing process yes, like it yes. sounds like Gottlieb went over everything with a fine tooth comb and um and sussed out the passages where Heller was quote unquote like clearing his throat <laughs> or just or in any way like not getting right to the point yes and yeah it, it sounds like it sounds like the editing process was pretty intense but also like the ideal that writers and editors aspire to, right? Where like the writer is doing stuff and then the editor is actually making it better and not like, not just making change for the sake of change. And the writer's not getting all mad about the changes and you know, that kind of stuff. There was apparently, uh, during the editing process, uh, one of the editors, one of like the copy editors was just tearing the book to pieces, Mm -hmm. like rewriting all sorts of syntactic idiosyncrasies of Heller's like changing stuff from uh, you know he struck a match and lit a cigarette to he struck a match and he lit a cigarette <laughs> that's like, terrible it's like functionally making the writing worse uh, and it took an extra six weeks to like go back and rewrite it in his own voice right because you can't like you can't revert to a previous save yes first when people are working with like the only physical copy of a thing and this led to the change in the in the book's title because by the time that it was finally coming out and this is 1961 ish yeah um leon uris's novel mila 18 was announced for like a summer publication Mm-hmm. And he had, and they didn't want two war books with the number eighteen in them. Yes, out at the same time. And then because, oh, so go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, no. Oh, I was just gonna say that like Gottlieb when he pitched this book to to the higher ups at Simon and Schuster, he acknowledged like it's probably not gonna be a big seller, but it'll be like our prestige book. So they already kind of knew that it wasn't going to fly off the shelves. Yes. And in in its hardcover re- version it actually didn't. Like it sold okay on the East Coast, never made the New York Times bestseller list. But then in uh 62 when the paperback version came out, 
um, it it started flying off the shelves apparently and became a bestseller. And it, this was driven in part because it was much cheaper. It was like seventy five cents compared to like five or six bucks. And also it um, it was kind of riding a wave of discontent about the Vietnam War. Yeah, starting with the Korean War and then in the v- the Vietnam War, uh, Heller's kind of said that unfortunately like, the Vietnam War was terrible for everyone except him. Like, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> just kind of awful. Uh, but it was almost called Catch Eleven. But then they re- they thought it might be too close to Frank Sinatra's Ocean's Eleven, <laughs> right? And it was almost called Catch Fourteen. Yes. And then they kept they kept changing it and changing it, and like some numbers were rejected as just being inherently not funny enough. Uh, correct. Apparently. <laughs> yep. Uh, and they were like thinking about the syllables of it, et cetera. And then finally, Gottlieb like randomly came up with twenty two. Uh, Naming stuff is hard. It's like, really dumb. I mean, there are stupid names for stuff like the Nintendo Wii or whatever. Like that's a <laughs> dumb name still. Like almost a decade later, it's still super dumb. But like everything sounds dumb the first time that you hear it, and then eventually, once you just decide on a name, like over time, it will become normal and like fine. I don't remember what other names we pitched for Overdue. If we pitched any others, I don't know that we did. Thank God. I don't remember. I'm not sh- I don't know. I guess I'd have to look through because I think we did some pitching like via an email and some via text. And I think the texts on my end, at least, have been lost to time. Yeah, there's a, there are a lot of conversations we have where I don't know if they're in email, Gchat or text. I wish we'd come up with more like bad titles like book friends. You should have read it by now. The podcast. Reading. Reading? <laughs> with a question mark. <laughs> Did, do you know about this book? Hello to books with Andrew and Craig. <laughs> it is perhaps more difficult to come up with a bad With name. intentionally bad names. <laughs> but yeah, that's... Welcome the... to Night Vale. Uh, <laughs> Limetown. The message. <laughs> this American life with books. 99 invisible books. <laughs> that would have been a good one, actually. <laughs> So let's talk about... The New York Times book review with Andrew and Craig. <laughs> we probably could have gotten away with it if we just t- took a real popular... like po- uh, WTF, the Mark Maron podcast with Andrew w- and Craig. <laughs> WTF2. <laughs> so let's talk what about... What are we talking about? Yeah, what this is, catch, book. Catch 22 me. Catch 22U. So this book is all over the dang place. And Much like our podcast about it has yeah, been so far. It's pretty truthful to the book, actually. So we will probably eschew the here are the plot points because this is the stuff that happens. Because that's kind of what Heller did. <laughs> like okay. the first, you can sort of look at the book, not unlike the, the seven chapter initial structure of it. Um in that we spend like the first 10 or 11 chapters in a single chronological line, just like bopping between different characters at this army. You Oh, you're bopping right now. Bopping. Yeah, I am. Yeah. I'm just doing this to help yeah, you. Nobody thanks. can see it. No, it's fine. Um, and <laughs> I can't bop with you while I'm talking, Bill. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's 1943. We are at uh, a U.S. Army Air Corps base. Um 
on the island of Pianosa, which is a, I believe, I think it's a made-up island uh, off the coast of Italy. And so the bulk of the novel takes place there. Occasionally they will jet over to Rome, which, like, I found the first third of this book real confusing. And geography not being my strong suit, I kind of lost track of where the island was and was very confused every time they went to Rome. (laughs) Okay. We're assuming this island is close to Italy because they're assuming, I assume they are bombing Italy. Yeah. They are bombing German forces that are in Italy. Okay. So I think at this point Mussolini is gone or if not completely gone on his way out in 1943. Mm-hmm. Um so Americans and other forces have moved in and are attempting to take anything that the Germans might still have in Italy from them. Mussolini died in 1945. Okay. Just just giving you some extra information. Thanks. Uh, what am I supposed to do with that information? Nothing. Just just saying, yeah, by 1943, he may have been on his way out. Great. So we jump back to um, the siege of Bologna at one point. Um, and then there's a couple more just like tracking through chronological stuff. And then at the end, everything is going real bad. And people start dying like chapter after chapter after chapter. Uh, and the book that has largely been pretty humorous for uh, most of it uh, takes a real dark turn at the end there before kind of coming to a close. Yeah, my understanding is that it uses its humor, especially early on, to like heighten how crappy things are later. Yeah, it's pretty... It's And you never... What's really... To, to not even say... We haven't even said what happens in the book yet, but like... There are moments that are gruesome and awful, but because the tone of the book has been so goofy and absurd, you it almost doesn't register how terrible it is at first. And then that gives you like... Because well, you're waiting for like the twist for it to like get funny again or something. Yes. Right? And then that's the like double effect of how terrible it is. Because you're like, oh, that's so goofy. Oh, that's not goofy that's not goofy at all yeah so the main character of the book is uh captain john yasarian 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 i'm gonna say yasarian just say it how you read it and we'll deal with the we'll deal with the listener emails later yasarian and he is an assyrian bombardier um I think the reason he's assyrian is because it kind of separates him from everyone else uh, there's not mu- too much made about it in terms of like any sort of uh, ethnic discrimination or anything. People don't seem to like his name, and they, that one of the colonels does speak to that. Okay, uh, refers to his name as odious, alien, dist- and dist- distasteful. Excuse me, uh, but it's it mostly just separates him from everyone else. Being racist was not as big a deal back in the 1940s. No, it was not. Good, like, not the best time for racists, but still pretty good time for racists. Yes. Pretty, yeah. Okay. Racist time travelers take note. (laughs) Just leave us alone. Go back in time. Well, no, because the butterfly effect, like, they'll just make it more racist. Like, it'll be harder to bring down the levels of racism to modern levels. Yeah, because, yeah. All right. 
Uninvent time travel. Go everyone. into the future and get stepped on by a cyborg dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. I would love to read some of your time travel fiction, Andrew. Oh, I've got some. Don't worry about Just that. Just let me know. Uh, so when we first meet Yasarian, he is in a hospital. He's in the hospital on the base, and he's very happy to be there. Uh, he's writing letters to his family, saying that he's in the hospital, but don't worry about him. And then he de- has to deal with the fact that they're writing him letters back. So instead, he writes the letters saying he's going on a dangerous mission, and he'll let them know when he returns. Okay. <laughs> so he never has to get any more mail and never has to write them ever again. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of letting you know where he is. His job while he's there is to censor other people's letters. Like, that's how he keeps busy in the hospital. And this kicks off a subplot of the book where he gets bored and starts, uh, like, crossing out people's names and then writing that they came from Washington Irving, uh, the author of Legend of Sleepy Hollow, Mm -hmm. or then getting bored of that and saying they came from Irving, Washington, just, you know, to mix things up. Yeah. He invented peanut butter, right? Yes, I believe so. 2,001 ways to use peanut butter. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, the government doesn't like this, and they start sending, you know, CID undercover men to come investigate it. And Are you being, like, for some reason, like, obviously the government doesn't like it. He's, he's... Like jokingly censoring letters. I don't think that censorship is something the government takes lightly. Well, like they but, want stuff to be censored if they've decided that it's. I suppose, to be but they don't know that it's necessarily him. Like he's just doing it. Well, they know that it's somebody. Yeah. And they want to find him out. Like that, that makes sense to me. But they think that Washington Irving might be a real person that's like stealing secrets for the jury. Okay, that's that's a little stranger. Yes. And a character who we meet later. Uh, major, 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 major. Um, Good name. Yep. Solid. He, he doesn't like dealing with all the reports that come across his desk, and he finds out that if he signs Washington Irving on them, they never come back. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he starts doing that across the board. Um, but back to Yasarian. He is a bomber, not unlike Heller, uh, and he has a couple different friends on the base. Uh, he's friends with his pilot McWatt, he's friends with his roommate Orr. Um, the interesting thing is that Yossarian has another quote-unquote roommate who is the dead man that lives in his tent. Apparently, a guy named Lieutenant Mudd uh, <laughs> arrived on the base, his stuff was put in his tent, but before he, he could even claim his stuff, he was killed in action. But because of the rules about him never actually registering on base, they can't technically remove his stuff from Yossarian's tent. Is this in itself a Catch-22? Yes, it is. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, I'm, I think I'm getting it. I'm pretty good at this book. Yeah, you're, pre- you're winning this book so far. All right. So, so far, we've, we've run down a long, like, string of events. Like, is, is there more, are there more, like, specific events you want to talk about? Or should we try and... Should we try and suss out like what Heller is trying to say with the book or like what his overarching points are? We we should try and suss out how Catch-22 wraps through the book, which we'll do. Okay. Uh, Talk probably. about like the structure and the and the way it's written and how information is delivered and that stuff. Well, how the how this inherent paradox kind of grounds the whole universe of this Okay, book. cool. 
Yeah, let's do that. So starting with the one you mentioned earlier, that people who were crazy were not obliged to fly missions, but anyone who applied to stop flying them was showing a rational concern for their safety and was thus sane. So this is the like heart of Yasarian's relationship with Doc Danica, uh, who's one of the doctors on the base. And he likes Yasarian, but he can't ground him because of Catch-22. So Catch-22 is Heller's examination of bureaucracy, and I think is what's led this book to endure beyond army stories and beyond military critique. Like, it's mm-hmm. at its heart, it's a critique of inane bureaucratic machinery uh, or obtuse machinery rather not not inane Mm -hmm. Um, because a lot of these rules come from higher up in the food chain than you can really tell who's behind them and the people who are in charge the various colonels and generals above Yasarian kind of hide behind it Uh, later on in the book there's an old woman in Italy and the section, the section of Italy that they're in, has kind of fallen to pieces. And Yasarian walks through the streets, and everything's terrible. And she's pleading for help from him, and she says that they told her because of Catch Twenty Two, they have a they just they the military have a mm-hmm. right to do anything we can't stop them from doing. <laughs> okay, which is just an am- what? Yeah, it's an amazing. <laughs> paradox of power structures because you can apply that to a whole bunch of stuff that's going on right now like from our relationship to corporations to how you know various people would and would not like the government to function yeah like we if we can't stop them from doing it they sure as heck have a right to do it i i i guess maybe not Think about it's, that for a second. It's uh, it's it's so big that it's hard to even like talk about. Like, so if if we're talking about like uh, let's let's pick like government surveillance or something like that should be sure. pretty broadly unpopular with our listenership, regardless of where they are on the <laughs> on the political spectrum, right? Like, I don't know. Don't email me. I don't care. Um, so it happens, and it's been like signed into law and that law has been around long enough that just like inertia has made it hard to get rid of yeah but then like we the people in a democratic society like in theory we should have the power to get rid of that if we don't want to but some combination of how big and weird the political machine is it's just it it's there's just this thing that exists and it's happening and like nobody has direct control over it anymore. That makes total sense. There's a character called Milo Minderbinder. That's how I'm gonna pronounce it. <laughs> it might be Minderbinder, but Minderbinder is a lot funnier. Minderbinder. I think they should be the same, but we could call him Minderbinder if you want. Okay. Milo Minderbinder. <laughs> Milo, Milo Minderbinder. If that Mind- helps, if Minderbinder helps you, then yeah, that's, I'm gonna, it's Minderbinder. I'm going to say Mersha Mersha if I don't say Minderbinder. So Milo, Milo Marka Marka, he loves the war because he is a mess hall officer. So he's in charge of all the cooking, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And he starts selling stuff on the black market. And he creates something that he calls the syndicate. Now, the reason that the syndicate works is that according to Milo, everyone has a share. 
Okay. Okay. So he so is far. trading goods for the profits of the syndicate. And you have a share in the syndicate, Andrew. So if I'm Thanks. if I'm stealing goods from you, but then selling it to someone else who then sells it back to you at a profit, it's good for you because it's good for the syndicate. That's stupid. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Yes. So, but I can see why, like, you could take somebody like me who comes up to you and is like, "That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard," and then you like logic puzzle me into being vaguely satisfied and then walking away. Yes, he is nothing if not a giant chasm of circular logic. Uh, his his catchphrase is, "What's good for Milo Minderbinder is good for the country," which apparently is a parody of Charles Wilson saying, "What is good for the country is good for General Motors." Mm-hmm. Um. So this manifests in such a way that he starts out selling eggs and he is getting fresh eggs from Sicily for one cent. Then he is selling them to Malta for four and a half cents, buying them back for seven cents and selling them to the mess halls for five cents. Follow the money, Andrew. So he t- he starts with a red paper clip. Yes. And then he trades... <laughs> up until he owns a house in Tuscany. Exactly. Okay. And all the whole while he is claiming that everyone is profiting from this. So he starts something called M&M Enter- and M&M Enterprises. M&M Enterprises and the M stands for minor binder and the other the ampersand and the other M are there to dispel any idea that it's just a one man operation. <laughs> So he's using the black market to kind of get what he wants, and he's making all sorts of money. He's even, like, when he takes stuff from the squadron, like the CO2 cartridges in the emergency life vests, he leaves notes behind that say, property of M&M Minder Binder, what is good for M&M is good for the country. So, you know, when your life vest doesn't work, it's for the syndicate, you're fine. So he is like the first ever defense contractor. He yes, <laughs> basically like. Heller is critiquing is kind of using this circular logic to critique the nascent military industrial complex. Cuz here's cool. what happens from Milo. He starts trading these goods for planes and within a few months he has like a fleet of his own planes that he's painted all white. And like they say, Eminem Minder Binder on them, and he's like flying sail ads in the sky from on both sides of the war from Geico. Yeah, usually. <laughs> and then he takes contracts with Germany. So you never in this book actually see German soldiers. The only thing you see are their anti-aircraft fire. So wait, he's like conned the Allies out of planes, and then like letting Germans contract his stolen planes to fly German missions? Is that what's happening? So in the Battle of Orvieto, he he has a squadron of his own planes for the Allies that are going to bomb a bridge, I think, in Germany. But he's Mm -hmm. also sold all of the anti-aircraft goods to Germany. So his own men and his own equipment are fighting both sides of the battle. That sounds right. Like somebody, it sounds like somebody should be able to to stop that from happening. And it it goes so far as uh, he ends up taking a German contract that bombs the base at Pianosa, where his own <laughs> squadron is. 
and everyone's real upset at him and he gets court-martialed for treason but he hires a really good lawyer who is then able to convince the court that it was capitalism that made America great in the first place so he discloses his enormous profit and kind of gets off okay so again this is really speaking to our modern times yes where we can't possibly punish people because capitalism yes Jeez. The, my favorite part of the minor binder story though is he goes to egypt he goes on this like goods buying tour with yasarian and a couple other guys they end up in mm-hmm. egypt he literally buys all the egyptian cotton in existence and then he can't offload it because he has nothing to do with it so mm-hmm. he tries to market it as chocolate covered cotton <laughs> and like tries to make Yusarian eat it and it's the worst uh, and he's flipping out because he doesn't know what to do with the cotton but he does I think later actually get to sell it because at one point Colonel Cathcart's like but you're the guy who gave all the men chocolate covered cotton you're a hero all right so does this book have like a central sequence or a central a, like a, like something that makes all the other parts in the story move other than the war or is it just this broad like interconnected series of stories about the war machine and the crappy people who who make it as crappy as it is like (laughs) it's largely the latter i would say that it is largely a series of characters that flesh out this uh worldview Mm -hmm. and this scenario um, so you've got folks like Milo Minerbinder, you've got folks like Major Major who, uh, gets so tormented on the base that he doesn't want anybody to be able to see him in his office. So he tells the guy who waits outside his office that, uh, people can, when people come here to see me, you have to tell them to wait and then I'm going to leave. And he goes, well, what can I, what do I do when you leave? Send him in to see me. So they're only allowed to see him when he isn't there get it right yeah it's so there's a lot of characters like that a lot of characters that embody their own catch-22 and the through line is yasarian trying to survive so the thing that does escalate over the course of the book is colonel cathcart uh has set this mission if you fly a certain number of missions you get to go home so if you fly 40 missions uh you get to go home And then over the course of the book, he keeps upping it by 5, 10, 15 missions to the point where at the end of the book, I think you have to fly 60 or 65 missions. And then, because Milo Minderbinder is upset that everyone's getting credit for being in combat and he's not, uh, everyone has to fly extra missions that are actually Milo's missions before they can leave. So no one actually gets to leave and Yasarian would really, really like to mm-hmm. because the whole world is out to kill him and his whole existence is just to survive. Now, he also like spends a lot of time having getting drunk and having sex uh, with prostitutes in Rome, but that's like a whole other part of the book. Um, and it boils down to one last Catch-22 where after Yasarian has been spending couple months not wearing a uniform like literally just being naked kind of in protest of the whole operation Mm -hmm. because a good buddy of his died and most of his good buddies died 
they tell him, listen, we know you don't want to fly anymore. We will either court-martial you and you'll be, you know, arrested and put in prison. Or we will send you home to the United States and you will be a hero. All you have to do is like us and say good things about us and be a hero. So basically embody the positive side of everything that is terrible about this or get court get court martialed and put in prison. Yeah, okay. So that's what it kind of it boils down to can you live while acknowledging like can you get out of this system at all? And the book mostly seems to think you can. There's like a little bit of ray of hope at the end, but it's very very slim. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like to get out of the system, you have to go and perpetuate the, the system. Basically, you have to go and say good things about the system and encourage other people to revere and possibly even participate in the system. And in so doing, you have perpetuated the system, even though you personally are no longer directly contributing to it. Correct. That sounds like a blast. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Uh, I think <laughs> Heller said in one of the forewords to a previous edition of the book that the certainly there were people in World War II that were not happy with how things were going, and this type of behavior was certainly happening, um, this type of bureaucracy. But it was it was being written at a time... 10 years hence it was being written during the Korean war. And then it uh, found a fan base during the Vietnam war. So there's elements to the book about disillusionment and despair for how things are being done that were not necessarily part of world war two, because we had such a clear enemy in the yeah, West. Well, I mean, it's, it's hard for you and I to have a clear perspective on what stuff was like from the inside, because World War II, all we get is like the whitewashed, like greatest generation version of the thing. Like even even now when we're talking about um, like the Japanese internment camps and like the less rosy side Certainly. of that whole thing, like it's still, it's still, it feels like kind of a revelation almost to hear that we were not like the capital G good guys that we've, that we were to hold in like high school civics that we were yeah and you see that you know, coming up with the with the refugee situation right now where a lot of yeah. people are saying like hey look back at our not too distant history where we all claim to have been the best there were people that were and were not okay with that like let's try and come down on the right side of history for once it's it's a lot of it's like a lot it's a lot of stuff to wrap your head around and yeah because it's war and war never changes like at all there are a bunch of creepy parallels to stuff that's happening right now and, and yeah that's yeah. very true there is certainly uh one scene we didn't I kind of alluded to this whole through line of the book is when they go to Rome they are often going there to sleep with prostitutes and whores and there's a probably way too many essays to be written about uh women in this book and how poorly treated they are i think it's one of those things where it's not supposed to be taken in a i think we're supposed to find it reprehensible 
it just so happens that there are is, are we supposed to find it reprehensible or are we supposed to read it as though like nothing was meant by it because that's how it went unfortunately i think it's a mix of both at times okay yeah um some of it is played for humor in a way that i didn't like uh though in the final chapters of the book when things get extra dark uh it does point at that and say this is bad uh but that's there's like someone who uh suffers sexual abuse and then is like tossed out a window and it's so extreme that it is in keeping with the humorous setup of the earlier parts of the book but you know in that moment that it's awful and it's the worst mm-hmm. sure. uh, so that's kind of what i was alluding to earlier with with how heller treats this stuff but one of Yossarian's buddies, Nately, is like 19 years old. He's the fresh baby face guy, and he's in love with a whore in Rome. And he gets swept up in this conversation with an old guy in the whorehouse who is talking about how one of the reasons that Italy has survived the this war and will survive this war is by losing, <laughs> and that... Th- by fighting to win too hard, you will be destroyed. Uh, okay. That, like, Italy rolls over to the Germans and rolls over to the Americans, and that's what will allow them to be there when those countries leave. Um, he says, Rome was destroyed, Greece was destroyed, Persia was destroyed, Spain was destroyed. All great countries are destroyed. Why not yours? How much longer do you really think your own country will last? Forever? Keep in mind that the Earth itself is destined to be destroyed by the sun in 25 million years or so. And Nately goes, well, forever is a a long time, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) The old guy says, a million years? A half million? The frog is almost 500 million years old. Could you say with much certainty that America, with all its strength and prosperity, with its fighting man that is second to none, with its standard of living that is the highest in the world, will last as long as the frog? So there's this great, like... I don't know. This is in the middle of the 20th century. We just won World War II, albeit we did it by dropping two bombs on a country and imprisoning a bunch of people. But I don't like. Was that seen as a bad thing at the time? Even and and even now, you can. I think I would probably subscribe to the justification where like we did it. And it saved lives by scaring people into ending the war, but also like the bomb is the worst. Yes, and it's, it's created very... a whole bunch of other worse. Yeah, right? it's all very complicated. The bomb itself is a, is a great catch twenty two, and that's you know that's what all sorts of stories and and movies have been created around. Yeah, um, but I think I really liked that that the. Hey, your country's maybe the worst, and this is a conflict where you've told yourself it's the best. Came at a scene that is in a whorehouse, (laughs) and there's just an (laughs) old Italian guy like dropping truth H bombs on Nately. Five hundred megatons of truth. Yeah, is bam. It's pretty good. Um, I will also say that this book is very successfully funny we we've talked we've bumped around this uh topic on earlier books and uh, as we've been doing the show that like sometimes it's hard to be funny in a book and i think for me it usually comes down to rhythm mm-hmm. because it's hard to control that in prose like you can't yeah it's like it's rhythm and for me it's all about like wordplay because that's what you have like you don't have 
when you're watching a movie or a TV show, like so much of comedy is in like the editing and the delivery and like musical cues and the way that you cut scenes together and and like you have a lot of other things you can like kind of lean on to be funny in addition to the dialogue. Whereas in a book, it's just it, it's just the words on the page, and you have to you have to find a way to make that funny to most readers' minds, even though like people are going to be reading this from different perspectives and in different circumstances, and like you have very little control over the the way that it's read, you know? Yeah. So I, Heller gets around that by using this type of almost demented Monty Python logic in his dialogue <laughs> you know sure uh and then he also does a really good job of of just offering you one thing and then like making good on it in the next sentence so i'm just going to read one last quote and then i think we're probably coming to a close okay um so captain flume is a character who we meet pretty early on who hangs out with yosarian a lot he ends up becoming like a crazy guy who lives in the woods uh and the reason he does that is and here's the quote. Captain Flume was obsessed with the idea that Chief White Halfoat would tiptoe up to his cot one night when he was sound asleep and slit his throat open from, for him from ear to ear. Captain Flume had obtained this idea from Chief White Halfoat himself, who did tiptoe up to his cot one night as he was dozing off, to hiss portentously that one night when he, Captain Flume, was sound asleep, he, Chief White Halfoat, was going to slit his throat open for him from ear to ear. <laughs> So it's it's a lot of that kind of humor where it's like here's the thing that sounds outlandish and it's definitely outlandish because here's the punchline. Right and, and and you can you can amplify that punchline by using the same language to describe the actual thing that's happening as you used to describe the hey wouldn't this be crazy thing from earlier. He uses repetition to great effect. Uh there's a couple really harrowing moments in the bombardier planes when Yasarian is trying to talk to this guy, Arfie, who just doesn't answer him. His only responses are like, what are you saying? Or I can't hear you. And it's so it's delivered in a way that's like morbidly comic because Yasarian is afraid for his life and he thinks the plane's going to go down. And this guy just keeps like blissfully staring him in the face and saying, what are you doing? What are you talking about? What's going on? <laughs> uh, so the thing, these things that are like terrible and could be very dangerous are just ratcheted up to absurdity for a comic mm-hmm. effect. Yeah. And like repetition can be rough in writing, right? Like, like you can just sound dumb if you're repeating the same thing over and yes. over. It's like, oh, hey, don't you have a thesaurus? Like, don't you know other <laughs> words? It's It's this... It does require skill to use, to deploy like the same language, the same words, the same phrases in a way where it is like obviously intentional and not just like a lack of creativity on the writer's part. Yes. Uh, And often that comes in with Heller in terms of like finding that one clutch word that changes it to Mm -hmm. make it funny. Yeah, there's a I was reading the um, the stuff about Catch-22's path to publication. So this is a scene um, that he had originally written kind of be kind of to be comedic, but then he backtracked and realized that the comedy was sort of undercutting the death of this character. Um, and so the original, this is in chapter thirteen or no, chapter twenty-three. Get my Roman numerals a little bit mixed. Is this up. Kid Samson's death? No, this is about no. Dobbs. Okay. 
and um, and Snowden. Um, the original sentence was, Yossarian lost his guts on the mission to Avignon because Snowden lost his guts on the mission to Avignon. And the guts in the first sentence is supposed to be like, you know, his his will. He lost his he lost his figurative guts because Snowden literally lost his guts. Mm-hmm. And he decided that, that that pun was kind of undermining his point. And 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 he changed it to uh the mission in which Yosarian lost his balls <laughs> because Snowden lost his guts. So just like breaking like dissociating those two words even though the meaning of the sentence ultimately doesn't change all that much yeah there's a similar one where after snowden dies uh he bleed you know he bleeds out and all of his remains fall into yasarian and uh that's one of the reasons why yasarian stops wearing all of his clothes and captain corn spelled like the 90s band corn which was <laughs> unendlessly funny to me oh uh tells general dreedle the names are so good. Are these like Star Wars characters? Like what? Yeah. The- <laughs> it's outrageous. <laughs> um, he tells General Dreedle that one of the reasons that, you know, he Yossarian isn't wearing any clothes because all of his ar- other articles of clothing were in the laundry and his clothes got all bled on. And Dreedle says, that sounds like a lot of crap to me. And Yossarian replies, it is a lot of crap, sir. <sighs> okay. You know, get it? Yeah, get it. I get it. So I feel like this episode has been a little disjointed maybe because this book's a little bit disjointed too, but tell me like, what was it like to read it? And did you have a moment when you discovered that you liked it? Cause a lot of the time with these like disjointed dense books, it can just feel like work to read it sometimes. It's very much. And I know, yeah. yeah, I know that we like put off this episode by a week or two because you were just like getting through it. It very much felt like work for the first third of the book. Like as it's just rapid fire, introducing new characters to you, it's jumping back and forth a little bit in time. And the only real handhold you have is how many flights are required before you can go home. Like that Mm -hmm. is the one thing that you can track as whether it's increasing or decreasing. And I got a little confused. And this is probably on me. I got confused between uh, Snowden who dies in the plane and Mud, the guy who ne- dies before his clothes even get unpacked. Uh, there's just a lot of different characters, and it's hard to keep them all straight, especially because so many of them are defined by their title, and so many of them have similar titles, like colonels versus lieutenant colonels. And all the, all the while, you are trying to unpack these logic puzzles that are the basis of every scene. So yeah, yeah. for a good long while, it was like, oh, that's funny, that's interesting, but I have no idea what's going on. For me, it really clicked with Milo Minderbinder because I think the syndicate <laughs> is hilarious. Uh, and it clicked in the major, 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 major section because he gets mm-hmm. his own chapter, um, which starts with how his dad named him that as a joke and also how everyone dislikes him because he looks not enough, but sort of like Henry Fonda. And... That's a weird reason to like or dislike somebody. Yeah, it's like it's pretty great Um, because everyone's upset that he sort of looks like Henry Fonda, but he's not actually him and he doesn't look as good as him. And then people start suspecting that he's Henry Fonda in disguise. Like major, 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 major is hilarious. I like him a lot. Uh, And that for me is a lot of 
lot of pop culture about people like being upset about their names that were given to them as jokes. Oh yeah, like Michael Bolton from Office Space. Yeah, and I'm think I was like boy named Sue. I'm thinking of that that old uh-huh. Johnny Cash chestnut. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Katurian, Katurian, Katurian from The Pillow Man is a good mm-hmm. play reference for people who like plays. Nobody. <laughs> it Nobody it was a plays. it was a chore of a of a book until. It really centers in on Yossarian's conflict with the base. Um, and I, I once people, st- it's sad to say, once characters start dying in a way that advances the conflict, then it becomes like a book that I'm like, oh, I need to find out what happens next. For a period of time, it's like, here's a bunch of humorous scenarios that yeah, are sort you kinda, of getting my point you, across. Sometimes you kind of need that storytelling hook to draw you in. And then, like, retroactively, you can appreciate all the wordplay and whatever. But if it's just, like, a big pile of wordplay, it's like, okay, I'm I'm reading this because I was told that it was, like, part of the canon or whatever. Not, like, I'm reading this because I'm having a blast and I'm drawn into the story and invested in the characters and those reasons where, why we normally, like, read stories. Yeah, it's the point of the book is that Catch-22 is disorienting. Like, you you think about it just hard enough to almost get it and then you lose it. And so for the bulk of the plot to be based on instances of that is really tough. Yeah. <laughs> so if other people have read this book and been like, I don't get it and I'm done like a little ways in, I feel ya. If you've pushed through and you love this book because of the ways that it blows up bureaucracy and, and you like a lot of the characters, I feel ya. Um, it's a catch-22. Sort of waiting for the first book that we do an episode on that we haven't like finished because we were too we were too like something about it you know yeah i don't know that'll that'll ever actually i don't know what a book would have to do to 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 make that happen because we've read super long stuff we've read like girl next door yeah we've we've been through a lot in this like crucible of book reading that we've created for ourselves yeah what was that harlan killison book that you read ellison yeah whatever um, was that boy a boy and his dog? You read that thing. You read Blood Meridian. That wasn't that. Well, that wasn't that long. Blood Meridian was both like uncomfortable to read and super long. <laughs> <laughs> it's a combination that does not lend itself well to like finishing it. Yeah, but like I we pro- we provide a service to our listeners here, and we actually, that's a note that we get a lot, and it's like my favorite. <laughs> It's my favorite note is like you guys read this book and now I know that I never need to read it. Well, I think that maybe you want to give Catch-22 a try, but if you don't make it through, I respect it. If you do make it through and you want to tell us all the things that I didn't talk about that you think are more important than what I talked about, you should go to twitter.com slash overdue pod or facebook.com slash overdue pod and leave us a note. Uh, I want to thank Graham, Alyssa, Cleo, uh, Lee... Kelly, Emma, A.M. Christensen, Sophie, Julie, Rebecca, uh, J. Robert, Bailey, Matt, a whole bunch of other people. I don't have the full list in front of me, uh, including some people on Facebook that I'm forgetting to mention uh, who reached out to us over the past week. It was Um, Susan, Melissa, and Kathy are three of them who've gotten in touch in the last week or so. Good call. So Thanks all. Uh, you can also reach out to us via email like Connor did at overduepod at gmail.com. We appreciate those messages. That's usually where people also recommend books to us and 
let us know where they found us, which is also super cool. Andrew, mm-hmm. where might they find us if they were using an internet browser? If they were browsing the information superhighway, they can find us at OverduePodcast.com. Um, up there, we have a whole bunch of links to other places, including iTunes, Stitcher, and our RSS feed. You can use those to subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they drop every Monday. Um, if you subscribe in iTunes especially, do leave us a rating and review. We've been getting a lot of those lately, and uh, we're pushing... 200 ratings and 100 reviews and i would still really like to cross those thresholds by the end of 2015 so let's make it happen guys uh that also uh helps us rise in the rankings like we recently broke into the top 50 in arts podcasts pretty cool uh now we had previously been in the top 50 and we usually are in the literature subcategory of arts (laughs) so we've like we've climbed up one more branch on that tree now yeah, I want to thank everyone just... who helped us take it to Garrison Keeler. Yeah, Garrison. Why don't you go home, old man? <laughs> home to your prairie. Take a companion <laughs> with you. Uh, we also went over to podcast.com. We have links to Amazon. You can buy the books that we have read that we are going to read. They support us that way. Um, you can pledge money to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash pod. Um, that's a way to support us in a continuing fashion. And as as more of you donate, it eventually unlocks rewards. Like we recently crossed over the $250 a month threshold again, which means that our merch store is going to become more of a thing again. Like we're still uh, working behind the scenes to make that happen. And hopefully in 2016, we'll have some things to, to show you guys. Uh, what else is up there? Anything else? Uh, new listener page. If you've got friends who haven't listened to the show before, you can send them to the new listener list, which we will be updating after we record episode 150. Uh, it's got a... Which is so soon. Uh, so Way soon. too soon. Got a handful of uh, of episodes that we think are pretty good entry points, but we also appreciate you just passing on episodes that you like to people. Andrew, what are you reading next? Uh, for next week's episode, I am going to be reading Around the World in 80 Days, and then uh, we've also got a bonus episode for November coming uh, both to patrons who are going to get it a little early and then to the main feed a bit after that. And that's going to be on Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart, which we recorded last night. I think it came out pretty well. Yeah, it's a good book. Um, And yeah, and then episode 150 is coming up. I've, I'm not like counting because I just don't want to know. But when one, episode 150 comes, it will be about the third and final book in the Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy. Fifty Shades Freed. I don't want to think no, about there it. Are, there are no words. Thanks to our uh, lovely podcast network, HeadGum, for helping us out and spreading the word about our, our cool little show that we do. We're honored to be a part of their network. Uh, also, thanks to Spreaker for hosting all our stuff and providing yet another way for people to find the show. Uh, I think that's it, Andrew. I don't want to think about Fifty Shades. Can we go now, please? We can go now, please. And I just want to present you with a, you and the listeners with a final Catch-22 the only way that you can tell us that you think we're too dumb to email is to email us. It's the only way. That's pretty good. Or like Twitter or Facebook or whatever. <laughs> it's the same, like, same principle. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. I'm sorry I blew your mind. Until next week, try to be happy. <laughs>
That was a HeadGum Podcast.